Lord, we must be honest with ourselves and with you that we do not have what it takes to understand your word, to have the strength to live for you in these last days in this wicked world in which we live. And yet, Lord, we come before you to worship you, to bring honor and glory to your name in song. Lord, I pray that the preaching this morning would be simple and just help us to see and understand how great and good that you are. Lord, we know that you will be exalted in this world and that every knee shall one day bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Lord, until that day comes, we ask that you would work through us, work through this church, that people may see that Jesus is the Lord and that he is good. And that he is the only way to eternal life. We ask you to work that you may be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to a very familiar passage for most of us. Exodus chapter 14. And... uh, The mighty men of valor meeting there in Montreal area was a very, very excellent meeting. Uh, The only difficulty is you get your head so full of great thoughts and great things to preach that it's kind of hard to preach sometimes. And uh, so, but uh, it was a very, very good meeting. And uh, Brother and Mrs. Gaddis send their uh, love to the church and their greetings. Uh, He was one of the speakers there. And so, just looking forward to what the Lord is going to do. And so, Exodus chapter 14, if you're familiar with your Bible, this is the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And uh, as was outlined in the Sunday school this morning, uh, there's often what we call pictures or types in the Bible. And And we're going to just spend some time looking at a picture. These were real events. These things really happened just the way the Bible said. But but there is an application. There is an admonition for you and I today. And so I want us to look at this picture here. And we're actually going to start in chapter 13 and verse 20. It says, And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people." And so, just to set a little bit of context here, the children of Israel had been 430 years, the last portion of that time, they had been enslaved. Uh, All of the plagues and the signs and wonders had been effected. This night was the night of Passover. There was not a house in the land of Egypt of the Egyptians where there was not one dead. The eldest uh, in every family had died. The Egyptians were, of course, terrified. Uh, they were full of sorrow uh, at the loss of their uh, family members. They were, of course, angry, and yet they understood that it was connected to the children of Israel. 
And so they, the Bible tells us that they thrust them out of the land and that there was no time to prepare any food. There was no time to let the bread rise as it normally would. And so they were to eat unleavened bread. They were just forced out of the land. And as they marched, uh, if you've been in Sunday school, you've seen that slide over and over again the past several months of the pillar of cloud and the children of Israel walking through the land of Egypt. God led them right to the Red Sea. And we know the story as they were encamped there by the Red Sea. The, Pharaoh, the armies of Pharaoh, led by Pharaoh himself, come and they're going to re-enslave the children of Israel. And so the children of Israel cannot go forward because there's the Red Sea. They cannot go back because the armies of Egypt are there. We have a saying that we use, I'm between a rock and a hard place. Now, can you tell me the difference between a rock and a hard place? Uh, It's just uh, a way of saying I am stuck right here. I cannot go forward. I cannot go back. We could say that the children of Israel were between the sea and an army. Uh, would you, which would you rather do? Would you rather drown in the sea or would you rather be murdered by the soldiers in the army? Well, how about neither? Amen? Uh, how, how about a different choice? But yet those appeared to be the only choices that the children of Israel had. And of course, if we come skip down chapter 14 uh, to verse uh, 10, and we'll read 10 through 12 here. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word? that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, if you've been in Sunday school the past several weeks, you found out that the children of Israel often went back to this thought. And uh, later they said it'd be better to die in the wilderness than to fight in the land of Canaan. And so God said, sure, it's going to take 40 years, but that's what you're going to do. Because returning to Egypt is not an option. And what I want us to do is look at this story, if you can, if you can feel just a little bit of the... um, Roller coaster, we might say, the children of Israel were on. They had seen God turn the water into blood, only their water was turned into blood as well. And they had to dig and, and, and try to find fresh water for those seven days while there was no fresh water in the land of Egypt. And the, uh, then came the other plagues. And finally, the last one, they had painted the blood of the little lamb on their doors. 
They had eaten the lamb for their dinner late and late that night, about midnight. In the land of Egypt, there was not a house where one was dead, except where the blood of the lamb was painted on the doors. And the soldiers of Pharaoh came and the people uh, literally just took the children of Israel and pushed them and threw them out of the land. And the Bible says that God had already instructed them, when you go, say, give me gold and silver. And so the children of, Egypt, the children of Israel spoiled the Egyptians that night. They took with them a treasure trove of silver and precious stones. Arguably, at that time, Egypt was one of the richest nations in the face of the earth. One of the richest nations in history. Uh, it was the turn of the, just after the turn of the last century. Uh, they broke into uh, an unviolated tomb of a little-known, very unimportant teenage pharaoh called King Tut, as we know him today. How many songs? How, how many books have been written about King Tut? Movies made of the curse of King Tut and all this kind of foolishness that's out there. But the world was held in awe by the gold and the riches that were found in this 19-year-old, nobody-nothing-king-for-a-few-years tomb. Let me tell you something. The wealth of Egypt was beyond what we can imagine today. And the children of Israel, as they left, carried those riches with them. It would be the precious stones that they would receive this night from the Egyptians that they would build the... the uh, the breastplate of the high priest and the hundreds and hundreds of pounds of gold that it took to make the tabernacle was willingly donated by the children of Israel. They had more left over. They had gotten all those things this night. Now, could you imagine being a slave and then all of a sudden have more riches than just about you could carry? And you're walking out of the land as free men and you're looking forward to a good life of freedom. And, and then all of a sudden you turn around and there's the Egyptian army behind you ready to take everything back. I mean, you talk about an emotional roller coaster. Uh, uh, this would be a prescription for psychiatric drugs if there ever was one, wouldn't there? Uh, I mean, they were up and down and up and down and the children of Israel didn't know what to do. And I want you to, first of all, understand, and most of us know the story. The Red Sea is going to part, the children of Israel are going to go through. God knew what he was doing. God had it all planned out. How many of you, that's an amazing thought? Well, I mean, if you know your Bible, we expect that. Amen? That God had a plan. That God knew what He was doing when He led the children of Israel in what appeared to be the wrong direction. When he led them to encamp by the Red Sea, 
when he entrapped them in the land, when he led them to a place from which there was no normal exit? How many of you have ever thought this in your own heart? Don't raise your hands here or been told. Listen, that Bible stuff is okay, but it really doesn't apply to the world in which we live. I mean, how many of you have heard that? How many of you used to think that before you got saved? You know, would it amaze you in this story that God did what he did to make himself, God, and Israel look foolish in the sight of the Egyptians? Look at verse 3, chapter 14. Well, let's read verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Baal-Zephon. Before it ye shall encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land. And the wilderness has shut them in. God told Moses, listen, I'm leading you in a place that Pharaoh is going to look at where you're going and he is going to understand that you don't know where you're going. How many times have you been asked? How many times have I been asked over the years? Do you really know what you're doing? And my favorite answer is, if I did, that would take all the fun out of it. Amen? Especially when you're in some huge building project or something. Do you, do you really know what you're doing with this? Oh, uh, if I did, uh, I wouldn't be doing it. Amen. I'd be out there making money doing what we do, not doing this. Uh, I want to challenge you today that God has put things. We're going to just skip ahead to the application for just a second here, but get back to the story. That God puts things in his word purposefully. To make you and him look foolish in the eyes of the world. That's what God was doing here. Now, let's stop and let's just take our story here and put a little reasoning in. What had God just done to the land of Egypt? He had destroyed the ecosystem in the land of Egypt that had supported life for centuries, the Nile River. Every living thing in the Nile River died when he turned the waters to blood. How long would it take to recover? Could I challenge you? 40, 50 years? For the the Nile River, even though it was flowing, for the the different and vast life forms that that river supports and all of the different levels of life. You have to have the little plants and the little insects that eat the plants and then the big insects that eat the little insects and the little fish that eat the little insects, the big insects and the big fish that eat the little fish. And you, you understand how that goes. I mean, there are layer upon layer of life, each one wrapped up in the other, and that was all completely wiped out. 
the crops, the trees, the herds had all been decimated. There was not a green thing in the land of Egypt when God was done. How do you live in an agricultural society? And by the way, uh, I love the bumper sticker. Uh, There was one I saw, it was actually a series one. If you can read this, thank your teacher. If you had something to eat this morning, thank a farmer. Uh, You have to stop and think about that. Our society today is no different than it was in Egypt. We have vast food production resources here. And if those were all wiped out, let me tell you something, people are going to starve. That's what was going on in the land of Egypt right now. The greatest god in the Egyptian pantheon was Ra, the sun god. People worshipped the sun god because it was the sun that brought warmth and made everything grow and gave life. And God turned out Ra for three days. Darkness over the land of Egypt. And then came the death of the firstborn. Now let me ask you to think about this a minute. Does it make sense that a God who had done all of those things couldn't read a map to get the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Hello? See, people are amazed. How many Sherlock Holmes books television shows, movies, TV series have been made. Oh, my goodness. Because everybody likes the fact that he can look at something that nobody sees and figure it out. Can I tell you how come Sherlock Holmes is so smart? It's because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle made him up and wrote about it in a book. It doesn't happen in real life. Honest. Only on TV. Only in the books. But we won't apply one-tenth that amount of common sense when it comes down to what God's written in this book called the Bible. I mean... I don't want to be crude this morning, but how stupid is stupid? Pharaoh saw God do all of these things. And then the children of Israel take a wrong turn and get stuck in a dead end at the Dead Sea. And he hears about it. He's still got his spies out through the land. They're following them everywhere they go. And he's going... These people aren't even smart enough to figure out how to get out of the land of Egypt. What a dumb God they have. Uh, Excuse me! God knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew exactly what Pharaoh was thinking. See, we're not Calvinist here. 
We don't believe that God is a puppet master pulling all the strings and making everything happen. But we do believe in a sovereign God who knows what's in the heart of each person in this room. And in our Sunday school time, we read the story and spent time with the story of Rahab, how God stopped in arguably the wickedest city in the land of Canaan to pick one of the wickedest people in the land because he knew that there was faith in her wicked heart that would bring her to trust Jesus, to trust in the God of Israel. And if God was willing to stop and pick up Rahab the harlot, let me tell you something, he's willing to pick up anyone who will come to him. But God knew what was in Pharaoh's heart. The Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God knew what kind of man Pharaoh was, and he knew that there was one answer, only one answer for the end of Pharaoh's terror and hatred to Israel. And that was going to end in the Red Sea. God gave Pharaoh what was in his heart. The only problem is God could not destroy Israel. So he let Pharaoh destroy himself trying to destroy Israel. Do you get that? You see, God had a plan. He wanted to make himself And Israel looked silly and foolish in Pharaoh's eyes because he knew what was in Pharaoh's heart. He knew that Pharaoh would never give up his desire to control and dominate. Let me tell you what the world is so upset about, what our politics are so upset about. They're losing control. The people who have been in charge of all of the... Washington and the government, they are losing control. And you want to see crazy. Somebody told me that uh, George Soros, that day of the woman that we just had here a little bit ago, was 200 and some odd million dollars that he financed the day of the woman protest with. It's not real. Now, if he called me up and asked me to protest the day of the woman, I, he, he couldn't give me enough money to participate. But there are people who want to participate in that kind of stuff. You see, what the world wants is they want control. We have people in this room that used to live under the Soviet domination. When election day was held in the Soviet Union, did you vote? You'd better vote, because if you didn't, the goon squads would be visiting, because they wanted to know why you didn't vote. And you had choices. You could vote for candidate A under line B. You could vote for candidate A under line B, under C, under D. You only had one candidate you could vote for, and if you didn't vote for them, you were going to be in trouble. But you could vote for them a bunch of different ways. So you could feel that you had expression and freedom. 
and choice. But there's only one name on the ballot. That's not choice. And I know I'm oversimplifying things, but the world wants control. They're not satisfied. What is the number one rule of the world? I just believe and live and let live. Liar. You do not. You don't believe and live and let live. Because you're not satisfied until I say, oh, you know what? God says you're right. (laughs) That's what the sodomite community is pushing for. And that's what they'll never get. Because you can't lift this Bible up and say that what God hath called an abomination is true. And that angers them. Same thing with Islam. You see, they're not satisfied that you say, listen, you have your religion and you have mine. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. We can convert from your religion, but you cannot convert from ours. If you convert from Islam, the sentence is death. Well, let's have a fair contest here. Well, nothing's fair. Because, you see, we serve God. And he has, if I can borrow one of their phrases, uh, he has no helpers. He has no equals. He is God and he is God alone. And therefore, Allah and Muhammad, his prophet, can't even light a candle compared to the glorious light this book tells about the God that created heaven and earth. Amen. Amen. You see, God does some things that makes the world think he's silly. You you can't live a good life in this world. It's so full of wickedness. Don't you understand that is the power of God that conquers this world and proves this world is wrong by living a different kind of life. A godly life in a wicked day. By the way, don't flatter yourself or our society. Praise God, we have yet to reach the levels of wickedness that were known in the days of Paul as he started the church in Ephesus. New York City has not fallen to the depths of a Corinth in New Testament times. We're not there yet. I mean, we're heading there awful fast, let me tell you. But we're not there yet. I, I, I never get over the somebody says, oh, Preacher, if I, I came to your church, a building would fall down on me. I'm sitting here going, give me a break. You think you're that bad of a sinner? How dumb is dumb? I mean, come on. You, you're, you don't even deserve to carry the bucket for some of these guys that the Bible's talked about. Don't tell me how bad you are. You're no, you're no worse than Rahab the harlot was. Yet God still loved her and saved her. Can we say amen to that? 
You see, God had a plan. God knew what he was doing. And God actually wanted Israel and himself to appear to be foolish and ignorant in the sight of Pharaoh and his people. Because God was still working. But you see, the most wonderful thing about God was he wasn't only working with Israel, uh, with Egypt. He was working with his people as well, now wasn't he? I mean, these people, the children of Israel, at this point, they're comparing their riches that they had gotten. Uh, they're, they're laughing and joining. The Bible says they went out with a high hand. They were shouting and, and, and laughing and giving God praise for all of the things until they heard the army of Egypt. And they turned around and they said, we're all going to die. Well, now let's go back and look how foolish the children of Israel were. They had seen all of the plagues. They had seen God kill the firstborn in every family in, in, the, in, the, in the land of Egypt. And they were afraid of, of Pharaoh's army after all of those things. How foolish is that? Could I challenge you that mankind in his best and greatest state is foolishness? Unsaved Egypt? They thought they were going to go out and conquer the children. They thought God didn't know enough to get out of the land of Egypt. Well, wait a minute. The children of Israel were the believers in God. Were they any less foolish than the Egyptians were? If I can borrow a Bible phrase, I trow not. I'm, you got to be kidding me. The unsaved world were stupid beyond stupid. The only thing that exceeded the, the foolishness of the Egyptians was that of the children of Israel. That's why Jesus said that the children of light are sometimes much more ignorant than the children of this world. You see, God's interested in only one thing. Himself. We think that God's primary interest is us. That's how we're influenced by our society in which we live. Has mankind ever made a product that wasn't for your best benefit? Well, that's what they say. I mean, all you need is this perfume. And every handsome, rich guy that's ever lived is going to follow you wherever you go. Right? And guys, if you only have this certain car, every rich, beautiful woman that's ever lived is going to want to go with you wherever you want to go. 
That's almost as dumb as the Egyptians and the children of Israel in our story now, isn't it? You see, foolishness has not changed. They just put different words and different pictures to it. Because mankind at his best is foolishness. At his greatest is beyond ridiculous. You see, God had a plan not only for the Egyptians, but for the children of Israel. And when it was all said and done, the only thing that God was going to have was both the children of Israel, oops, that's the Egyptian finger, the Egyptians and the children of Israel bringing glory to him. Because that's what God is interested in. Because you cannot find your place in this world unless you are willing to bring glory to God. I'd like to have you turn your Bibles to Psalm 46 for a moment. And our theme verse for this year And then I want us to go back and finish the story and try to apply these things. Be still and know that I am God. And what's the rest of that verse? I will, this is God speaking, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Now that's the, the second part of that verse there. And the next verse with it gives, fills out the idea here is God is going to be exalted. God is going to be glorified. Mr. Hawkins though he can't in this physical life, is going to bow the knee in the world to come and confess that Jesus is Lord. And that his great thought processes and all of his theories were nothing but foolishness. Albert Einstein, arguably the, supposed to be the smartest man that ever lived, is going to fall on his face and bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Our current president and the one before him and the one before him. I'm glad to tell you the first one of those men, George Washington, willingly bowed his knee in this life confessing that Jesus is Lord. And I have every hope of seeing him on the right side of eternity. Not too many of the others. But... What God is interested in is His glory. Now, you have to choose how you're going to participate in that because you will participate in that. Adolf Hitler 
Napoleon, all of the Caesars, Alexander the Great, are all going to be dragged before that throne. And every one of them is going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Nebuchadnezzar actually did in Daniel chapter 4. He said, he is the God of gods. And so I have some hope that I'm going to see Nebuchadnezzar on the right side of eternity. It's going to be amazing. And yet so many of those others. And we come back to our story, if we can, with this thought in mind. That God is going to be glorified one way or the other. That you're going to participate in that glorification of God, either willingly or unwillingly. These are the biblical parameters. These are things that you do not have a choice about. But here's what you do have a choice about. How I'm going to participate today. What I'm going to do with my life today. You do have a choice about that. And so we go back and let's just talk a little bit about the children of Israel and the work that God was doing in their life and the work that God was doing in Moses' life as he had them pinned between the Egyptian army and the, uh, the Red Sea here as they are uh, uh, pinioned between these two forces of death and yet God is going to bring them through alive. In fact, God is going to bring them through in such a way that in our story this morning of Rahab the harlot, 40 years after the fact, the entire land of Canaan was still trembling in their hearts, thinking about what God had done 40 years before. And so we come back. And we, we look here, and I just love this picture. I hope you don't mind this going over this again. Let's go back to verse 13 here uh, of the book of Exodus. Chapter 14, verse 13. The people of Israel had just come to Moses, and they said, It's better for us to die and eat. Why did you bring us up out of the land of Egypt? And Moses said unto them, unto the people... Verse 13, And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. I like Moses. He was a man that said what needed to be said. If we were to translate this into the vernacular, he said, stand still and shut up. He said, you just need to stand still. You're going to see what God is going to do. You need to be quiet. Hold your peace. You know what? You can't hear what God is saying with your mouth open. Do you ever think about the fact that sometimes our prayers keep us from understanding what God wants us to do? 
because we're so busy trying to tell God what we think he ought to do instead of being still. I mean, we went through that be still a few weeks ago. That is turning over the direction, the motivation, the impetus, the movement to God. How many of you have ever seen something where you just had to stand still and look at it? Let's go. Do you think when those walls of water came crashing down in, children of Israel just sitting there going, wow. You know what the Egyptians were doing? No! And they were all wiped out. See, God had to put the children of Israel into a place where they couldn't move so they could learn to trust in God. How many would say, Pastor, I'd like to learn to trust in God more. I know I need to learn that today. How many of you are willing to take a trip to the banks of the Red Sea with me? You see... It wouldn't do us any good to do that. God's not going to part the waters. Pharaoh's army's not there. But if you want God to increase your faith, if you want that kind of faith to learn to trust in God, God's going to have to put you in some fairly uncomfortable situations. That's what James chapter 1 is all about. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing trying of your faith worketh what? Patience. We all love patient people, but we hate being patient. That is human nature. That is who we are. That is the foolishness of being a human being. And you're not going to escape it. You've got to choose which side you're going to be on, though. I'd much rather be foolish with the children of Israel in this story than foolish with the Egyptians in this story. How about you? Hello? Amen? Do we have anybody that wants to line up with the Egyptians in this story? Please see me. You need counseling. Uh, I'll try to help you. Uh, We know what happened to the Egyptians. They lose. They lost everything. They were all dead when the story was over. But God had to put His people there. So that they can understand a few things. Number one, God does not do things in a way that appears wise or prudent to the world. Because God wants us to trust Him for who He is. He doesn't want us to trust our thought processes. Uh, I can't remember where this came from. I'll take credit for making the statement no one else does. But if you can figure out a way that God's going to do something, he'll change his plans. God is not interested in you figuring it out. He's interested in you trusting him. He's not interested in you appearing smart or prudent What he's interested in is him being glorified. 
And so as we look at this story, we understand God had a plan. He had a plan for Egypt. He had a plan for the children of Israel. He did things that made the Egyptians think he was foolish. He made things that made Israel think that God didn't know what he was doing. Because God always knows what he's doing, but he won't do it until you stop trusting yourself and trust only in him. How many of you remember the day you got saved? Isn't that how it worked? You finally stopped trusting in yourself and just trusted in God. You see, God did his work while Israel stood still. God did the work. They stood there. They looked at the water and all of a sudden they saw Moses taking that rod and lifting it. And that water began to move. Now in our days of special effects and CG and all of this, I'm sure that we could come up with something on screen that would be pretty cool to look at. Uh, Back in the 50s when... Mr. DeMille made his Ten Commandment movie. The only thing in the whole movie he got right was the crossing of the Red Sea. And what he did was he took uh, a movie picture of a waterfall and he turned it upside down and backwards and made the water go like this. And and, uh, that's pretty smart for not having all the modern effects that we do today and, and, and things like that. But it was a wall of water, the Bible tells us, on both sides. I like to think it was the first aquarium. That the children of Israel could watch the fish swimming around as they walked through. It's just my imagination, if, if you'll take it for that. But you have to remember this pillar of cloud was between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And as God told them to move forward, the Israelites saw the sea open. The Egyptians didn't see anything. Because it gave light to the children of Israel on their side and darkness to the Egyptians on their side. And you say, if the Egyptians got darkness, why did they keep moving and things? Well, you have to remember The only light that the Egyptians had were the torches they were carrying with them. And torches, unlike all of the movies, don't burn forever. They they go out. Uh, They'd gone on this expedition out into the Sinai Peninsula against the Red Sea. They didn't have light for 48 hours, 24 hours like we do. Their torches were burning out. They were going dark. They could hear the children of Israel. They didn't expect to see them. It was nighttime. And so God opened the sea and the children of Israel got to see because there was light on their side. And they go walking down through there and they're looking at those walls of water and and they're just sitting there going, Wow, look what God has done. This didn't happen in an hour. Let's read down in the story here. Verse 23. And the Egyptians 
pursued and went in after them to the midst of the sea, even all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And it came to pass in the morning watch. So here we have that murky darkness starting to get just a little pale as the sun comes up over the hill. And all of a sudden, the Egyptians realize something is very, very wrong. They're down in a valley. Only the hills aren't made out of dirt. They're made out of water. As the sun just peeks over the horizon, those lights start, those rays of light start filtering through the water and the Egyptians realize they're in the middle of the Red Sea. That wouldn't be a good thing to realize, now would it? And here's what the Bible tells us. It says, And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians and took off their chariot wheels, and they drave them heavily, so that the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. So here's the picture. That first little bit of sun comes up and starts lightening things, and they look up at those hills that were just dark shapes, and they realize it's water. And they say, Get out of here! Retreat! And all of a sudden, the wheels fall off the chariots. And they start whipping those horses and, and frantically trying. And the, and the horses are dragging the chariots over the rocks and the things in the bottom of the Red Sea. And I just have wonder if Pharaoh doesn't look back and see Moses holding that rod on the other side. And he puts his hand down. And all of a sudden, all that water just folds in. And crushes and drowns and destroys the horses. And the... Yes, animals were harmed in this story. And so was the entire army and Pharaoh himself. You know, as I was thinking about this, one thought occurred to me that I'd never really thought about before. It's it's so simple. Why did God have to do this to the land of Egypt? But if you stop and think about it, did God know that Israel would sin? And that they would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness? What a target the children of Israel would have been wandering in the wilderness if the armies of Egypt had been in full force. I never thought about that before. God was protecting his people even though he knew that they were going to fail. He kept them safe. 
by giving Pharaoh what was in Pharaoh's heart already. Pharaoh wanted to destroy Israel. God said, you're not going to do it, but I'll let you destroy yourself trying. And that is the history of mankind, my friend. You see, God has always had a plan. His plan was the old rugged cross. Foolishness to the world. Doesn't make a bit of sense. In all of the religious stories and all of the religious traditions that man has invented all through the ages, not one comes even close to the truth that God had envisioned that God himself would die in the place of man and suffer and be tormented by the very men that he created. But you see, in order for you to get saved, how many of you remember how desperate you were when you finally trusted Jesus as your Savior? How much struggle it took for you to get rid of yourself and just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You say, probably pretty close to what the children of Israel were going through here, don't you think? Maybe not quite that extreme. Well, maybe you're not that quite of an extreme person, amen? But the simple truth is God has to take us to a point. It was Paul that said, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them. That will believe. I want to challenge you today that God will be glorified in this world. Period. And that you and I and every human being that has ever lived at our best are foolishness. But you need to make a choice on which side your foolishness is going to be. Are you going to be foolish in opposing God? Or are you going to take your inability and your faithlessness and choose in your foolishness to worship God? Because God will be exalted. If you don't do it in this life, you're going to do it at the great white throne. You just are. And in this story, we have illustrated so much of what goes on in our world today. Would you be willing to be still and know that He is God? I remember as an 11-year-old boy, just simply trusting God as my Savior. And He saved me all those years ago. I wish I could tell you I've been as faithful to God as he has been to me, but that would be a lie. You see, it's not about me. It's about him. And how many foolish things have happened. I like Brother Marshall. He said there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. I just never have been able to find the line. 
Because what the world says is foolish. God says, I'll use that to build faith. Amen? And so my question is, where do you line up in the story today? You're going to be foolish. Choose your side wisely. Choose your foolishness wisely. That's why Paul said we're fools for Christ's sake. Amen? I'd rather have Pharaoh calling me stupid than God calling me foolish. Because that could mean an eternity of separation from God. Where are you in our story today? God will be exalted. You will be foolish. How are you going to allow God to take you and use you to get glory to himself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to think about this honestly, biblically. Lord, that we'd be willing to be honest with who and what we are in our failures, in our inability to please you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be as the children of Israel and just stand still and be quiet. Stop trying to prove to you. Stop trying to prove to ourselves. Stop trying to do anything except have faith in God. Lord, I ask that you would work in our midst. That we would be able to understand our foolishness for what it is. And your love and your goodness for who you are. And Lord, that we would live in your word and in your truth. Through this coming week and through these years that you give us on this planet earth till you come and take us. In your name we pray. Amen. As we sing, if you need to come and pray, the altar's open.